Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on the program, we'll hear conversations with two pop music scholars. In the second half of the program, we'll hear a conversation with Professor Eric Weisbard. Weisbard is a former music editor for The Village Voice and contributor to Spin Magazine. He teaches American Studies at the University of Alabama. But first, we'll hear a conversation with professor and writer Kevin Detmar. WFIU's John Bailey spoke with Detmar last year when he was visiting IU to give a lecture at the College of Arts and Humanities Institute. Our guest today is Kevin Detmar, whose multifaceted career includes research and teaching on the topics of British and Irish modernism at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and writing about contemporary music and culture in books such as Is Rock Dead? and an installment of the 33 and a Third series devoted to the Gang of Four album Entertainment. His forthcoming book is tentatively titled Dancing at Their Typewriters, The Inventors of Rock Writing. Kevin Detmar, thank you for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. Let's go back to the beginning. Can you talk about an earliest memory of rock and roll? You know, someday I would like to write, it wouldn't be a book, it would just be an essay, but I think there's something distinctive about being the oldest kid um, that maybe it makes you prone to come to music late. Like I didn't have a big brother or big sister to turn me on to what I should be listening to. So my parents listened to show tunes. Uh, paint your wagon. <laughs> it was that was my mother actually when she met my father and when I was born uh, worked at Capitol Records in Hollywood at the sort of that iconic stacked records looking building. And the story is that when she came back from maternity leave when I was two weeks old, I met I was held by Nat King Cole. So my background is all kind of standards and and uh, classical music and not rock at all. I think the earliest memory I have is probably going to like a Kmart and buying the Carpenter's singles collection. Do you recall a moment of rock and roll awakening? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I was, um, so I'm I'm sort of flashing on that early scene in Almost Famous when uh, Zoe Deschanel pulls out that crate of records from under the bed and says, listen to, I think it's Tommy is the one that she picks out and says, listen, it'll change, you know, it'll change your life. It'll blow your mind. And that's, that's what I didn't have. I sort of stumbled into it. The, the big thing for me, looking at you wearing your headphones there, like headphones listening to Yes albums in, in uh, junior high and high school, I was, I was all into Yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Genesis, King Crimson, Gentle Giant, like all the prog rock, all those sophisticated, it seemed very uh, important to me. How acceptable was... Uh, this kind of composerly rock music to mm. your parents. Uh, they, uh, our, our our worlds didn't intersect much. I think it was mostly bedroom listening and mostly headphone listening. That was that. I want to think that I, I it sounded better, but I think it may have been a house rule too that if I was going to listen to what I wanted to, it had to be on headphones. So that was perfect. You published a book uh, in 2006 called "Is Rock Dead?" Yeah. 
In 60 years, have people ever not asked that question? No. I mean, one of the interesting things that I found was that, uh, um, how did this start? Nick Hornby, for a short time, who, and I love High Fidelity. It's one of my favorite, it's certainly my favorite music novel. Um, and for a while, he had the gig of writing about pop music for The New Yorker, short time. And he wrote a really stupid review, um, like willfully stupid review of Kid A, the Radiohead album. And I just got so frustrated. And it it dawned on me that there was a whole generation of guys, they are guys, and they're all my age, plus or minus three or four years, who were sort of making a profession of saying music was really good when I was in high school and college, and now it just sucks and, you know, and it's dead. And that just seems so fatuous to me. So I, I, I wrote a piece whining about this, and an editor, a book editor, saw, saw it and said, are you working on a book? And it seemed like the smart answer was yes, although I wasn't actually. So, But in researching it, the first there's a song uh, by Sister Rose, a song in 1956 called The Death of Rock and Roll. You know, and if, if you just said, like Elvis's Sunsides in 1954, it means that when it was two years old, people were already saying it was dead. So when you when you notice that, then you realize there's something else going on. It's not about the music. It's about uh, social anxiety or, you know, what the music represents to people. But rock would seem to, to ebb and flow to have its periods. And, you know, there was a, a period of a few years prior to the Beatles where there was not maybe a whole lot of fantastic yeah. stuff to look at the hit parade. All right. that stuff was bubbling under the whole time. Yeah, I think, right. I'm, I'm suspicious of those judgments when they're made in the moment. Like, I think it probably takes, like, for instance, um, I think uh, maybe only within the last 10 years are we in a position to appreciate the 70s music. I mean, the 70s were just derided. There was, you know, there's this horrible, bloated prog rock and stadium rock. Like, Well, part of it was because of a, a sort of unacknowledged homophobia, I would say. Like, we couldn't appreciate what was going on in disco. Like, when Daft Punk did uh, did their record a couple of years ago, and they're just channeling all of that that disco energy, and all of a sudden now we can hear it in a way that, uh, when I say we, I mean sort of like white middle-class folks could not hear disco as real music and, you know, the whole disco sucks movement and all mm-hmm. of that. Like, no. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but I, I also think that no matter how long you take, you're going to look at that, you know, the timeline of rock and say, yeah, those were kind of slow years. What, what makes 62. what makes them what makes them slow years? Just the yeah. absence of of a few big stars. I mean, the Beatles alone seem right. to change everything. Some people have started to write about this again in the last decade or so, but the importance of scenes. I mean, it's it's easy to fetishize like CBGBs or you know, Fillmore West or something like that, but. It's also true that a space can be a, a place where synergy kind of happens and that people are egging one another on and pushing one another to be better. Great music's not occurring in a vacuum. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot now about kids in basements with laptops, you know, and that's, that can happen too. But I think more often, genius, genius loves company, mm-hmm. as Ray Charles said. Right. <laughs> so for people to proclaim rock dead, I think, is informed by a number of assumptions, mm-hmm. including what rock is. Exactly. It, yeah. it has evolved so much. Right. A- at some point, did rock and roll become rock? Hmm. What's, the, just, what's the essence of rock? What's the essence of rock? Oh, geez. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I was just uh, Richard Goldstein, who's one of the people I'm writing about in this new book, who started writing about, well, his column was called Pop Eye. 
he usually gets credited as having the first nationally syndicated uh, weekly column on, on rock and roll. And he started, he, he changed from using the term rock and roll to just rock in 1966. Uh, and for him, and I think for a lot of people, rock and roll has connotations of sort of coming out of the 50s and vaguely rockabilly and um, more countrified perhaps some of that, um, and rock probably m- more electric guitar oriented and I don't know what else. Could it be, for lack of a better word, miscegenation? You know, a, a, mm-hmm. a mixing of black and white musics and yeah. and if and if one half of that equation is absent, then it's not rock? Well, another, another term in this equation is pop, right? And pop, I think, tends to be uh, pop is whatever uh, popular music you don't like. You call it. although there's there's this movement now to rehabilitate the term pop and poptimism. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think for a lot, of, you know, pop is sort of the bubblegum stuff that's beneath my notice, beneath contempt. It's not quite serious. It's not important in the way that rock is supposed to be important. But could rock just be? rock era popular music? Could that just be an umbrella title for everything? I'd like to think so. This anthology that I've done with Jonathan Lethem uh, that's coming out the Library of America, well, I, sh- I, I probably can't commit to a title because we keep going back and forth. But the working title now is uh, Anthology of Rock and Pop. Uh, that somehow that feels a little more capacious. And for some people, rock, um, it, it's very masculinist. It's very... Um, Tethered to a certain kind of instrumentation? Yeah, although pop can be that too. Uh, I don't know. I mean, part of it isn't even about aesthetics. It's more about um, some perceived relationship to the market. You know, that that uh, pop is, is unafraid of selling out, unabashedly wants to be popular, right? Whereas what, there's this, this horrible aesthetic in rock. Uh, I see it more in my students than in older folks like me, I guess. But this notion that it... The, the the more obscure it is, the better it is, right? If you, I, I want to wear a T-shirt of a band that you've never heard of because it kind of shows my connoisseurship and all of that. And uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy and, and one of these documentary shows. But anyway, he's he's talking about the term sellout, and he said, "Why is you know why is sellout a criticism? You want to sell, you want to sell your stuff, you want to sell out. Of course you do." And hip hop has never had that hang up about, you know, if if we're popular, then we're not quite authentic. I mean, Jay-Z says, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. (laughs) Your forthcoming book is tentatively titled Dancing at the Typewriter. Yeah. And it uh, traces the early, it traces the history of rock criticism back to the early days. Uh, In in many cases, teenage guys Mm -hmm. publishing what we would now know as zines. Right. Uh, Robert Christgau back in the early days, Grail Marcus, mm-hmm. Paul Williams. Paul Williams at Swarthmore, yeah. And, and, and lesser-known figures as well, such as Lillian Roxon, who mm-hmm. died young, mm-hmm. and Jane Scott. Jane Scott is a legend in Cleveland yeah. and among people who know rock writing, yeah. but she's generally not known. Why was she important? It's a... I, the more I think about this and write about it, the more complicated it gets. So I feel like this is an argument that's still in process. You know, it, it, when people write about the history of rock writing, um, her name gets dropped a lot. Uh, and she's she starts writing f- feature stories about rock in The Plain Dealer in 1964. One of the interesting things that I found out, and I wish I didn't know this because it makes me sad, but she would she would claim in later years that she went to the September fifteenth, nineteen sixty four show during their first U.S. tour and then wrote about it. She didn't write about it. 
<laughs> I, sort of the legend got away from her, I think. Um, but but she was writing. I mean, the Dave Clark Five and the Rolling Stones both came through later that year, and she started writing about it. the thing. The thing that I that I've come to really appreciate about her is that she wasn't writing about rock because she cared about the music per se. She cared about young people, and they cared about the music. So she was going to write about the music. I mean, it was really it wasn't her music. It wasn't her generation's music. She was coming from a place of writing about teen topics or teen culture. Yeah, when she first started with the Plain Dealer, um, she was she did she was an associate editor for the Society page, and then uh, in I think I forget the years now fifty four something she started uh, having the it was called Senior Class, which was the Senior Citizens beat, and then she pitched this thing called Teen Time, which uh, starts and uh, on Saturdays. And she would go out to local high schools and interview high school students and sort of write about events that were happening at the high schools or for for young people. And then uh, on September 12, 1964, so the Saturday before the Beatles concert, she went out to a Catholic girls' high school and talked to six young women about the Beatles. And um, they were so excited, she realized she should probably go to the show. Um, There was lots of coverage of the Beatles in The Plain Dealer, None of it was hers, but it was very, I mean, there's this amazing, it's sort of like a, a boilerplate caricature uh, write-up of the story by the classical music critic for The Plain Dealer, who's, you know, talking about this as in music and all, all the predictable things. But there are five stories the day after the show, most of them about crowd control and about screaming girls. And uh, part of what's interesting about this to me, and not to go on too long about it, but the term Beatlemania uh, is coined by a British journalist in October of 1963. In July of 64, uh, Hard Day's Night comes out, which is in a way just like it's an instruction manual for Be- Beatlemania. Like if you're a Beatles fan, here's how you should behave. If you're a cop, here's how you should behave. And then, you know, a couple months later, they come to Cleveland and everybody's playing the roles. And it's interesting because Jane, in talking to these high school girls, she talks to one girl who says, I'm really excited. I've never seen the Beatles live. Well, of course, they haven't been in the country yet. But I've seen Hard Day's Night 21 times. So it's like she's completely instructed in what it means to be an enthusiastic Beatles fan. And here she is 45 years old. Jane, A 45-year-old woman. Yeah. Uh, which was, which is nothing now, but it was. But she was still going to shows and filing stories when she was eighty three years old. It was unbelievable. Jane Scott, the Cleveland Plain Dealer writer, who covered rock music from her mid forties, starting in the mid sixties until yeah. very close to her death, was friends with all these artists who passed through, uh, including Lou Reed, who, yeah. with the Velvet Underground, first recorded. Uh, rock and roll. What's what's mm. what's uh, important about that song? Yeah, the line that I remember is, you know, my uh, her life was saved by rock and roll. I mean, it's it's uh, it's sort of a nostalgic song in a way, right? Talking about well, what sounds nostalgic now? A time when radio was really an important part of how you got to know rock. It's not so much anymore, I think. And theirs was um, uh, Jane Scotts and Lou Reed seemed like such an improbable friendship. I think. A lot of the writing about her um, devolves into sort of caricature very quickly. You know, she's a grandmotherly figure. The thing that's right about that is I think especially for, I mean, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Lou Reed, there were a lot of these um, pained young men, and she kind of got, I mean, she could sort of mother them in a way. 
and and bec- and they appreciated it. They didn't find it offensive. They opened up to her in a way that they didn't open up to other people. Rock and Roll by the Velvet Underground from Loaded on WFIU's Profiles. Listening to Profiles on WFIU, I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is professor and author Kevin Detmar. Jane Scott, I encountered her in yeah. her late 70s yeah. at a club in Cleveland, um, seeing a little independent band. Uh, it seems as if she was in touch with the scene the whole time. Do you have any evidence that she was going and seeing underground groups such as Perubu? In the early she did. days? Yeah, Davis Thomas, on the occasion of her 75th birthday, I think the Plain Dealer, it would have been the Plain Dealer, sort of organized a little bit of a celebration for her. And they must have encouraged people to send in birthday cards. There's a great birthday card. There's a great birthday card from Phil Collins who says, uh, you've always loved me. I think you might be the only one or something. It's like this <laughs> self-abnegating Phil Collins, a great card from Alice Cooper, all of that. But there's also testimony from David Thomas from Perubu who, who talks about she, she really got it. She really understood what was important about the music. So I think she had a commitment not to just seeing the headliners, but trying to dig down a little bit. I mean, she saw the Ziggy Stardust tour in 72 when Bowie came through. And he was nothing in this country in 72. But she went and she spent time with him. And he appreciated it. And when he would come back, he would always seek her out. So not that she was an opportunist about this. I don't mean to say that. But I think she recognized that if you pay attention to people on their way up, they'll remember you. Speaking of Bowie in 72 and groundbreaking women, can we talk about the David Bowie song, Suffragette City? Sure. (laughs) Why is that song notable? Uh, Why? It's such a strange album. Um, I think its reputation, you know, as being the, I mean, it's a concept album, or um, not quite like Tommy. Tommy's a little bit tighter, but there, there were ambitions in Rocker in that time to start making uh, sort of more like Wagner-like, you know, complete works like that. But the, the music is so, uh, well, back to that earlier distinction, it's rock and roll. It's not rock. It's very rockabilly. It's very uh, Gene Vincent sounding mm-hmm. kind of. It's it's uh, anachronistic, uh, anachronistic music about a space alien who comes and tells us we have five years left on planet Earth. So it's sort of a crazy mashup like that. But, you know, obviously a big part of the success of that record, which isn't it isn't much there in the album art or anything like that. But it's this persona. Uh, I think Jane, uh, I shouldn't call her Jane. I don't know her. Jane Scott or Scott. But anyway, she. Uh, she wrote very intelligently about Alice Cooper 
Uh, and she always got, you know, she was in on the joke uh, and realized that he was too. A lot of the fans didn't, but she got that it was a shtick. Uh, and in part, I think, because she saw Bowie doing it and going through all of this persona that he created and the sort of the outrageous stage. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the the documentary of the, uh, the Ziggy Stardust tour, but part of what's brilliant, I think it's D.A. Pennebaker. It probably is. But the film spends a long time, I want to say maybe 15 minutes before the show even starts, showing all the fans lined up outside. It's the Hammersmith Odeon, I think, lined up outside dressed up like Bowie, and they show Bowie going from being David Jones to turning into Ziggy Stardust with all the makeup and the hair. And so the film is sort of saying, like, this is a character that's being created who's going to go out on the stage, you know? And when he says this is the last show we'll ever do, it's a character who's... It's not Bowie. Bowie's not retiring. Ziggy, He's retiring Ziggy Stardust. Um, she got that. Let's take a listen to David Bowie's Suffragette City on Profiles on WFIU. Listening to Profiles on WFIU, I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is professor and author Kevin Detmar. Written a few books about rock and roll and a few more to come. You wrote an installment of the 33 and a third series. Why did you choose for that series mm. to tackle the Gang of Four album entertainment? It, it, it's an interesting story, actually. I had pitched two other books in that series, and they were both turned down. It's, and it's gotten to be very competitive. In the year that the Gang of Four proposal was chosen, there were 497 proposals for 12 books. So it's kind of brutal. So I had pitched earlier, uh, Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets. Nope, they didn't take that. And I pitched uh, actually Ziggy Stardust, the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. They didn't take that. So I went out to lunch. I have a friend um, who's also a colleague in the department. Uh, Jonathan Lethem had just written the book on Fear of Music, the Talking Heads album. So we went out to Chinese for lunch, and I just said I could I could use some help thinking this through. And he so he was asking me some questions, and when I started talking about Gang of Four, it's like, well, that's obviously what you have to write about, uh, in part because it came at a really formative time and when I was uh, finishing up at college. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, the short answer is I wrote about it because Jonathan told me I should, and he has pretty good instincts about these things. But it turned out he was he was dead right. What was it about that album at that time that yeah. moved you? Yeah, I write about that a little bit in the in the in the very beginning of the book, which is um, I remember coming home for Christmas vacation uh, from college and sitting in my friend Ian's living room and watch. We were waiting for the Sex Pistols to come on Saturday Night Live, and they 
were uh, turned down for their visas at the last minute. And they got Elvis Costello, whose record hadn't even come out over here yet. Nobody knew who he was. And it's like, this guy looks like a weird version of Buddy Holly, and he seems really angry. And it, it was just confusing. It was so confusing, we immediately ran out and got the import of the LP because you couldn't get a domestic release of it yet. And he was disruptive in his own Ryan on that show. He was. He, uh, the, I forget what the first song was, but the second song, he starts to play um, Less Than Zero, uh, calling, uh, calling Mr. Oswald with a swastika tattoo. And then he turns to the man and says, wait, wait, we can't do that here. Sorry, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do that song here. And that was all rehearsed because uh, they go into Radio Radio, which he had been expressly forbidden to play. And the band is right on it. Like, they're not confused. They know exactly. <laughs> um, so he was banned from Saturday Night Live for a long time. He came back when the Beastie Boys were on. They did something together years later. But uh, but anyway, the, you know, punk was happening. I mean, it, ha- it you know, the year that punk broke, it was all like my senior year of high school. And I was a prog rock guy. So this sort of primitive music didn't seem very interesting or important to me. I was a college student. I wanted to be an intellectual. Like punk just didn't see. I mean, somebody like Real Marcus, I think his writing betrays what a what a callow response to punk that was. But their own their own self image. It was dumb music, right? It wasn't smart music. I was going to listen to smart music. But Gang of Four was was pretty heady. These were guys who were reading, you know, Marxist theory and and singing about it. Um, it seemed like very uh, musically very visceral and immediate and and borderline frightening but with really interesting challenging content but you never heard gang of four or seldom did maybe on college radio why was that yeah no college radio definitely did um and that's how i first heard them Uh, kdvs was playing the record in advance of them coming and it sounded pretty interesting so a bunch of friends decided to go to the show um well i mean part of it so it's ironic i guess overused word, but John King, the lead singer, is now an executive in an advertising agency. Um, You know, (laughs) the best revenge, I guess. I mean, but so much of their music was anti-commodity culture. I mean, pointing out the way that advertising works, pointing out the way that people get turned into commodities. A song like Damaged Goods is this horrible um, consumerist take on romantic relationships where everybody just becomes another good that's for sale on a on a kind of marriage market um so that that's just not very conducive to to people who are trying to sell advertising time that's not probably (laughs) good stuff to play so writing a whole book about a single album Mm -hmm. how much did you listen to the music while you were writing about it and how much it was based on simple recollection i was trying to do a couple of things um i mean i listened to the album obsessively and outtakes and alternate takes and remixes and all of that. I mean, there was... Uh, in preparing? Yeah, in preparing. When I and, and I interviewed all of the... I spent some time with all of all four of the guys. Um, Bloomsbury, who, who does those books, in the guidelines for putting a proposal together, one of the questions they ask you is, would you have access to the bands or the artist? And I thought it was probably smart to say yes, if I could say yes. They clearly like having some interview material. So... I found a way to get in touch with all of them. They all said they'd be glad to talk to me. I was really surprised. Um, so listening a lot and also just thinking about, I mean, it's its not quite a memoir or autobiographical, but some of it is. I mean, I think the way that I heard them was particular to being a white middle-class kid from the suburbs and being in college and uh, and being an Anglophile uh, and also have being of Irish background affects the way that I hear some of the songs. 
So I was trying to situate in particular ways and also think about um, what you might call uh, rock with political ambitions. It seems to me a complicated task when the, the politics are very clear if you read the lyrics, but listening to the records, it's very hard to understand what they're even saying sometimes. How has your reaction to that music changed over 35 years? Um, how is it different? I don't know. I can't help but hear it. Uh, uh, part of me hears it as a 40 or a 47, 57-year-old, and part of it hears it as like a 21-year-old. You know, there are like these simultaneous reactions to it, reacting to it in real time and reacting to the way I used to react to it and how much it, it just meant so much to me. You've written so much about music. Do you love music because you love the work of writing about music, or are you still viscerally stirred by it? Both. I mean, I think sometimes, um, I mean, and I get this reaction in my own family, uh, like the writing about it would somehow, th that phrase of like overanalyzing or being too cerebral about stuff. And it's like, to me, that's, uh, as Woody Allen would say, the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Like, I just love that. And writing really, um, hopefully intelligently about music doesn't destroy it for me. Um, it does for some people. You know, they don't want to do that, so... If the 21-year-old Gang of Four fan oh. uh, could look mm. ahead to 2015, yeah, what would surprise him about your musical tastes? Well, there, you know, being—I shouldn't generalize. I'll say for me, being uh, being a high school and then a college music fan, um, I'm a guy, and that's a super big part of the way that worked. In my high school, you either liked Bob Dylan or you liked Neil Young, and I was a Neil Young guy. I ended up doing this book about Bob Dylan much later in life because I think a lot of these silly kind of like, oh, disco sucks and I don't listen to the Beach Boys are for girls. And I mean, a lot of they're ridiculous when you say them out loud, but I think there are a lot of these built in prejudices and those are mostly gone now. I mean, I don't think all music is equally good, but I don't think there are any obvious boundaries that are going to help me make those decisions. You have to listen to a lot. You're working on an anthology with Jonathan Lethem very well-known writer and a colleague of yours at Pomona College. Mm -hmm. You started at Pomona in 2008? Yeah. Um, David Foster Wallace taught at Pomona for a few years, did. Uh, ending in the fall of 2008 with yeah. his taking his own life. Did you have a chance to interact much with him in, in your brief time? Not so much. So um, <clears throat> I interviewed for the position on campus early in 2008, it was early February, um, and I had lunch with Dave, um, and it was tremendous. And I know now what I didn't know at the time. I mean, he, uh, he, was, he was doing very badly at that time, but he was still able to put on a game face and come have a very convivial lunch. I remember asking him at one point, the conversations, there's sort of a lull in the conversation, and, he's, uh, and so I said, uh, what are you working on? And he said, no, no, young man, I'll ask the questions here. And it was just hilarious. And uh, so I left and like, I didn't even know if I was going to get the job or not. But I thought, if I get to come here, we're going to be friends. This is going to be awesome. We're going to be friends. And I think he had that effect on people that you just being the object of his attention was was just heady. Uh, very exciting. Um, when I, so I started, I guess I started July 1st probably for uh, being department chair. And one of the first things we had to do was to um, 
pursue a medical leave for Dave because the depression was just debilitating at that point. So he was on medical leave in that fall semester. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, got a phone call from the police on a Saturday morning uh, that he was gone. Yeah. How uh, his mental illness was, I guess, an open secret. Yeah. To people in literary circles. Yeah. How surprised were you? I was I was completely surprised. The my colleagues who I joined who had known Dave for a while were, I mean, nobody was expecting it per se, but in a way, it was not a surprise. I, it was devastating for students because uh, he did. Um, he he was he was such a gentleman. I mean, he he worked very hard to make sure that his students had no idea what he was wrestling with. With colleagues, he was a little. They had a better sense, I think. Um, so it was very hard for students. I mean, part of the processing was them feeling guilty. Like, we've been so insensitive and Dave was, was suffering and we were just, you know, taking all of him we could get. How could we? And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's, um, he did that for you. Of course you didn't know. So. I've been speaking today with Kevin Detmar. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. That was WFIU's John Bailey speaking with professor and pop music writer Kevin Detmar. Next, we'll hear a conversation with Eric Weisbard. WFIU's Mark Chilla spoke with Weisbard in February of last year. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Weisbard. Weisbard is an author and music journalist. He is a former editor and contributor to both Spin Magazine and The Village Voice. And he's published a book on the Guns N' Roses albums Use Your Illusion for the 33 and a Third music series. Currently, Weisbard is an assistant professor of American studies at the University of Alabama, and he is known for founding and organizing the Seattle-based Experience Music Project Pop Conference. The EMP Pop Conference is a place for pop music scholars, critics, musicians, and fans to share their views and research. Weisbard's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. The book is a critical examination of Top 40 radio, and in it, Weisbard looks at the ways that Top 40 has shaped our musical culture and artists over the years. Eric Weisbard, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure. So first, uh, let's clarify. When you refer to Top 40, what are you referring to? I'm basically talking about the world of playing hit records on radio for an audience that advertisers are willing to pay to attract. Now, in the 1950s, Top 40 was only one thing. It was all the hits for as many people as you could possibly gather. Crazy madcap DJs talking as fast as a rock and roll song with jingles and and everything was just like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> My book follows the story of Top 40 one generation later. In the late 1960s and into the 1970s, music radio moves from AM radio to FM radio. It takes about a decade for all the people driving cars in America to switch from cars that have AM to, to cars that have FM. And in the course of that, that's where the music goes. 
and top 40 goes with it. And it stops being one category, and it starts to be multiple categories. Now you have a set of hits that are aimed at African Americans, and it's soul radio or R&B radio. Now you have a set of hits, and it's aimed at white Southerners or, or folks who identify with that music nationally in its country. Now you have music aimed at older listeners, and it's adult contemporary. Now you have rock radio aimed at the counterculture people. So suddenly, instead of there being one kind of top 40, there's five. And basically, my book is about the world that's made when you get five kinds of top 40 simultaneously attracting different Americans to different musical stories, but all at the same time. You make a distinction in your book between radio format and musical genre. So what's this distinction, and are they at odds with one another? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that we often constantly have the same battles over pop music, um, saying, why is pop music so bad, or why is pop music doing this and not this, is that we get confused about two things that are similar, but ultimately very different. Music genres are in theory about finding a particular musical form and going after it. I want to sound like a rocker. I want to have music that fully rocks and everyone who loves rock has a certain sound in mind and they can judge whether something's rock or not. That's a genre idea. A format idea is I want to reach some people who like rock. If those people change their mind about what rock is, I'm fine with that. And so my ideal at that point is not about a set of sounds. It's about a set of people. And essentially, if you want to say music should be about pursuing a set of sounds, you're a genre person. If you're interested in how music reaches a set of people, you're a format person. And while music fans often ultimately prefer the sounds, the argument of my book is, to demean the people is a very dubious thing because essentially what's happening with formats is all different kinds of people are being addressed by music and why should we um, tell them that what they like is doesn't matter if they like it it probably does matter Uh, so top 40 radio for many listeners it has really pop in general has often has this connotation of being kind of fluff or filler or background music not a very cerebral experience and that's one of the things that you argue against in your in your book so what can we learn about music and music culture in general from top 40 radio One of my sort of slogans in this process has been like, when a bunch of songs all sound the same, that's not a problem, it's a clue. You know, you know, essentially, when when a lot of things sound alike, that's telling you something about what's needed. And so sometimes maybe we should flip this. And instead of protesting against why for some period of time there's repetition, we should actually see that as an advantage, see that as, ah, all right, if there's 10 songs you know, by different people that all have a certain texture, that all reflect a certain sensibility. Maybe this is telling us something about what's cohering socially and culturally. And so I love moments when the radio sounds the same because it means that I'm more confident in my conclusions about it. (laughs) It works really well as a a researcher, I guess, yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about the history of Top 40 Radio a bit. Take us to the the diner where it all started. Ah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, to this day... Top 40 confounds music purists because it started with not a radio but a jukebox. It started with radio guys sitting in a diner watching a waitress at the end of her shift 
put her own money in the jukebox to play the same songs that the customers have been paying for all day long. And the radio guys are looking at this woman somewhat condescendingly. There's a, there's a certain element of sexism to it, but, no, but nonetheless, commercially, strategically, looking at this woman saying, you know, you can't overplay these songs. People really do want to hear a small number of songs again and again and again. And the lesson of Top 40 has been that when a song is in people's heads, they want to hear it. They want to hear it over and over and over for as long as it takes for that song to become an indelible part of their lives. And to this day, Top 40, when it follows that model, has been successful. We see that not just at the beginning of the story with the jukebox that then informs the radio guys who say, let's just do a radio station that's like that jukebox. We see that now with satellite radio. When satellite radio launched, one of its selling points was we have so many more stations devoted to music. We could have a station about music from the 1940s. We could have a station on just hip-hop songs that are a certain kind of southern hip-hop. Whatever you want, we can do it. And they put all these things out there, and what was the most popular thing by far was the station that played the top 20 songs. Not even the top 40, 20. So that proved by far to be the single most appealing choice in a context of quite a lot of choice. So again and again and again, we find that um, there is something absolutely attractive to people about having this small number of songs that they share with other people, that they that they hear again and again and for a time of their life become central. Even if that changes and the, and the set of songs five years later are a different set of songs, mm-hmm. people like that process. Yeah, so you talk a lot about in the book about kind of like the golden age of top 40 in the 70s and 80s, but I guess it's still alive today then, yeah. Yeah, there's there's several golden ages of top 40, if you want to put it that way. The first one was really the era of the Beatles and the British invasion in the mid-1960s. That was kind of the high watermark for that AM radio top 40. In the 70s and 80s, the success of on FM radio of these different kinds of formats was really, really important because what it was doing was it was letting the world know that different groups of people who might have been marginal to commercial culture before had to be taken very seriously as publics. And now you have this um, afterlife of Top 40. Radio itself is fading a little bit. Radio is not the choice of most young Americans. There's um, all kinds of new things that are radio-ish, but not actually radio, like Pandora. And yet in this sort of shrunken context for radio, even now, the Top 40 hits approach has proven to be the single most enduring category. So so the hits to, to of different kinds of approach, the thing that started it all, is almost going to be the last category of radio left standing, at least music radio. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Mark Chilla. Our guest today is Eric Weisbard. Weisbard's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, and it examines the history of Top 40 radio and its intersection with culture. So, Eric, one of the groups you focus on in your book is the Isley Brothers, an R&B group whose career stretched from the late 50s to the 1970s uh, and even beyond that. So, actually, let's hear some of the Isley Brothers right now. Their first big single, Shout, from 1959, and one of their biggest hits, uh, Fight the Power, from 74, I believe. Well, 
big shift in sound there from the 50s to the 70s, almost like two different groups completely. So what makes the uh, Isley Brothers an interesting subject for study? First and foremost, it's the longevity. This is a group of brothers who start in Cincinnati, and it's World War II era. They are coming of age alongside the civil rights movement, alongside rhythm and blues feeding into rock and roll. But they're still going. Forget the 1970s. They have a number one hit album as late as 2003. Really? So 44 years later, helped out by the fact that lead singer Ronald Isley becomes a character in R. Kelly music videos, Mr. Biggs, the Isley brothers are continuing to be viable in an era of hip hop. This is a massive generation, multi-generational narrative. And what the, the story of the Isley brothers can tell us is first and foremost that this is the story of rhythm and blues. Even before Top 40 was a concept for radio programmers, there were black-oriented radio stations, the first one in Memphis in 1948. Billboard, one year later, not coincidentally, comes up with a new chart that it calls rhythm and blues. It's the music played on these black-oriented radio stations. To this day, all these decades later, there is very much in the United States commercial programming aimed at a black listening public. So this music that was made in this corporate way in a segregated context proves really enduring, not just for the band, but as a category, as a set, as a repertoire, as a way of making music that emotionally has connected to black audiences for you know almost 70 years now. Uh, You also focus on Dolly Parton, and you talked about country, so let's kind of move on to this. She's another artist whose music and image was sort of shaped by radio, but in a different format, in country. So what was Parton's relationship to Top 40 Radio? Country is interesting because, once again, country like rhythm and blues predates the Top 40 system. You think about something like the Grand Ole Opry. Starting in the 1920s, it's already a radio staple aimed at Southern, working-class, white, so-called hillbillies. And so the weird story of country music that intersects Dolly Parton's life is, how do you get to have it both ways? How do you get to be modern and be traditional at the same time? And when you think about Dolly Parton, she's the embodiment of that. On the one hand, she can be Dolly Parton, who sings Coat of Many Colors about growing up poor, and her mom fashioned her a dress out of rags, and here's a picture of the actual dress, and it's on the cover of the album. Nothing could be more authentic. I actually have that song. Let's, uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of that. Back through the years I go wondering once again 
to the seasons of my youth I recall a box of rags that someone gave us And how my mama put the rags to use There were rags of many colors But every piece was small And I didn't have a coat And it was way down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of I mean, that's a totally great example of country music as a genre. That would be perfect if you wanted to sit or say, do you love country music? This is, this. here's a song for you. But Dolly Parton's also country music as a format. She's the person who wrote, I Will Always Love You. Let's listen to a little bit of that. I have that one queued up as well. I Will Always Love You. If I should stay That, my friends, is country as a format. That is essentially country music starting to develop the category that we know as the power ballad. Country music is always doing two things at the same time. It has to move into the future while rhetorically looking back at the past. It has to be a pop category, which is to say it has to be contemporary, but it can't lose its identity. It has to have the borders around it that let country persist. And so you end up with this funny balancing act that country constantly stages. And women in country music are the most controversial figures start to finish, partly because men in music are often the embodiment of authenticity. Think about Hank Williams. He's by far the guy who Um, In country music as a genre, you ask, would Hank have done it that way? You don't ask that about the women in country music. They tend to be the figures taking the category into the next pop um, phase it needs to go to. And they bear the brunt of, of that. They get scorned. They sometimes get pushed out. But they're doing this important work. And so one of my arguments is not just that we should re-see country music, but we should see women as far more central to country music's longevity exactly because Often, they're the ones who dare to tweak tradition. Let's talk about radio in general. It seems every few years for at least the last 60 years, someone is declaring the death of radio. It it died in the 1950s when television came about. died in the 1980s when MTV killed the radio star. It died when satellite radio fractured it. It died when the internet came around and introduced Napster and, and Pandora and Spotify. But here we are, and you and I are talking on an FM radio station. So it was radio ever going to die? It's a fascinating question. I mean, one of the questions is, will radio die? The other question is, what will happen to this format process? I think that it very well may be the case that the specific idea of 
a set of signals being transmitted through the air to a geographically limited range of people listening either on home devices or in a car, that that may go away. I, I think that, like anything else, change will come. What I don't think will go away is the two things that radio is about. One, simply disconnecting sound from visual and the way that that gives us a particularly intense experience of certain kinds of um, listening. And the second is this development of using radio to give us 24-7 places we can go to that feed us a sense of the world sonically that's about how you talk, what songs you react to. So those two things, the, the intimacy of listening through radio and the way it carves out particular people and makes them feel at the center of things, those two things, if they go away, I'm going to be very disappointed. Having studied Top 40 radio uh, so intensely, where do you hope music broadcasting will go in the future? Huh. I guess the truth of it is that I'm mostly interested in the playlist side. I'm interested in how playlists remain at the center of music. To this day, one of the developments with social networks like a Spotify and stuff is people share playlists with each other. It used to be that a playlist was something a radio station kind of imposed on listeners. These days, everyone wants to see, wants to get in on the, the process of creating their own playlist, sharing those playlists with others. And so I think that much like I enjoy the fact that YouTube has meant that you don't just punch the jukebox, but you can make your own parody version. I like the I like the notion that this all is going to get steadily more interactive, that we're going to be not just having a top-down, top-40 democracy, but a whole lot of grassroots, that there's something still vital and valid about driving with the radio on, an AM hit playing, and the world is a sea of possibility. Eric Weisbart's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. It was delightful. Thanks for such great questions. That was WFIU's Mark Chilla speaking with music writer Eric Weisbart. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.